Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm your host, Malachi Greb. Today, we have an awesome guest from Universal Robots. They came from Balaf. Can you guys guess who it is? It's your one and only, Will Hilly. How's it going, Will? Awesome. Really glad to be here, Malachi. Thanks for having oh, me. Glad to have you. I'm glad to have you. I'm surprised it took so long to get you on the podcast as it did. <laughs> You're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. I think trying to align the calendars is pretty tough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remembered I asked, I was like, where are we at with Will? Like, cause like, I don't handle a lot of the, who, who's on the show, yeah. like the, the nuts and bolts of it. And, you know, like I'll put in a request of like, Hey, I want these people here on, on the show. And, uh, yeah. So, well, I'm I'm, and I'm terrible. I'm notoriously terrible at email. So that is definitely <laughs> also, um, my, my personal shame of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good way to get a hold of me either. So that that, that definitely delayed some of the uh, <laughs> delayed some as well. So, so to start off this thing, can you kind of give people like a brief description of, of where you're at, and so that way they have an understanding of uh, just your current position and what you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm I'm Will Healy, and I work at Universal Robots. I am the global segment leader for welding. And so what does that mean? So I'm kind of like uh, overseeing all the things we're doing for welding, whether it's product management or marketing or or sales or these things. I'm not really directly managing those people, but I'm trying to make sure we're all working together. You know, our mission at Universal Robots is we want to create a world where people work with robots, not like robots. And so I want to make sure that that happens in welding and it happens in welding more for welders. And so trying to align our whole company so that we're, we're doing that as best as we can for all of our customers and all of our future customers. Um, I, I worked uh, in manufacturing for 17 years. I definitely didn't start thinking I wanted to work in manufacturing. We can talk about that later. But um, I, I've always been in automation and manufacturing, and, and I, I sold and marketed and, and uh, did product management for sensors and industrial networks and cables and connectors and all these uh, really cool automation input devices, I guess you would say. And so I'm really excited. Uh, I've just in the last three months switched to Universal Robots, and now I'm working on output devices, right? Uh, the arms, the six axis uh, arms that, that you see in, in all the cool videos. So, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think universal is like really cool spot to work and, and to be at. I mean, uh, who, as universal robots is owned by a, a parent company, right? Yeah. Teradyne is, uh, is a publicly traded company uh, and universal robots is owned by Teradyne. You are based in Denmark uh, and, and Teradyne's based in Boston. Got you. Yeah, it's like Teradyne, if I'm not mistaken, they bought uh, Mir as well, right? Yes, yeah. So uh, we're both part of the same kind of industrial automation group of, of Teradyne. So Mir Robots and uh, I forget what it is, Mobile Industrial Robot. I'm still new, so I'm still learning all the, the things. But yeah. yeah, Mir and UR are both owned by Teradyne. And Teradyne's a really well-known um, semiconductor testing equipment company. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I think is really cool is like both Mir and you are before they were really even brands under the same umbrella. I kind of still envisioned them somewhat the same, just in like the way that they marketed the way that they kind of just came up in the industry. Both, both of them like kind of came up right around the same time as far as like when they were deployed into the market, mm -hmm. all that. Yeah. 
I, I, I love the space that, that both these companies are in. This idea of collaborative automation is kind of new. And there's other technologies in there. Most people know collaborative robots. I think a lot of people know this kind of mobile robot um, mm. in the last year or two. But there's a lot of other collaborative automation out there that I think is really interesting, like um, uh, light guide systems, you know, using projection and, and lasers and uh, literally like vision combined with projection to be able to kind of augment the workspace of the worker and guide the worker through. So these kind of operator guidance solutions, whether it's lights on pick bins or any way that automation is used to collaborate with the human is really cool yeah. to me. I've seen some amazing things, how drones are being used to keep workers safer and collaborate with, with workers. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen that Boston Dynamics um, robot dog. There's a bunch of different brands of these quadruped dogs, uh, quadruped robots that are out there doing inspections and going in confined spaces where it's really dangerous for a person. We can send a robot. There's just this entire category of automation technologies that are working with people to make the, the life of the worker better are really interesting to me. And I, I find it really exciting. And it's one of the reasons I, I came to UR. So to, to go back into your, into your past, uh, you've already had a, a very great career and I think you have many more years of, of success and growth to come. Uh, what, where did, where did it all start? Oh, man. Yeah. So I'm a mommy and a daddy. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, um, you know, I've always kind of I, 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 as a kid, I always loved Legos and, and those kinds of things. I was always a little bit of mechanically minded and, and liked how things work and um Computers, I was very lucky. My dad kind of as a personal hobby and interest always thought computers were interesting. So at a very young age, this is a, a typical millennial story when I'm, I'm kind of on the end of Gen X and the beginning of millennial. So I'm kind of in this weird 82 baby if you want to age me exactly. But um, I, I had a computer in my house almost my whole life. I was always really interested in that, you know, how you program things and uh, what it can do and how it can do things. And so you combine all that together, and I've always kind of had this, this curiosity about how things work. Mm -hmm. And um, what's interesting is, is when I was a kid, my mom was a computer programmer. If you think back like early 90s, there weren't many lady computer programmers, but she worked for a very large, well-known company that mm -hmm. uh, you and I likely do business with. And she was writing all the code behind the team and managing a team, writing the code to, to run their business and really impressive. And so I always had this like representative of technology um, you know, in my family because of, of my dad's interests and my mom's interests, um, it, it definitely generated that. But the reason I bring my mom up specifically is when we would ask her questions as a kid, she would never answer our questions <laughs> ever. And it drove me insane as a child. Thinking back, I'm getting like hot, just getting angry, thinking about how she never answered our questions. But when we asked her, mom, how do I she would always respond, you know, you can figure it out. Or, yeah, yeah. Where where could you look to figure it out? You know, how could you find this answer? She would never like answer the question. Yeah. She would answer the question with, how do you think you would do that? And at the time, like I said, when I was a kid, I hated it. I hated it yeah. so much. I avoided asking her questions sometimes because I didn't want her to make me think of it. 
But thinking back, it was such a great, constructive, amazing way of thinking about the world. And today, I think that way, and I'm positive it's because my mom made me think that way. Um, so this story is getting longer and, and longer, but you know, it really caused me, how can, I, how can I solve it? How can I fix it? How can I do it myself? And so that was always uh, a very much ingrained in me. Um, just, just to build on that, um, I actually, I went to a college preparatory school. I went to an all guys Catholic military school. Oh, wow. <laughs> all guys, Catholic military school. So run all that through your head. And uh, I, I used to, if you watch old Will Automate videos, my wife and I just remodeled. We're still not done. Um, there's some shame in the corner here where I cut the carpet up and I still haven't replaced the carpet yet. So you can actually see the gap between the wall and the carpet. But um, I, I used to have a bunch of swords hanging on the wall here. And those are, are awards that I won in in military school. And I made a whole video about it. And, and uh, you can find it on LinkedIn. But um, I went to military school and I learned a lot in military school too about discipline and order and structure. And uh, that really helped me. And I had a really great science and math education in that school, which is, you know, really, really powerful. So um, when it was time to choose where to go to college and what to do, um, it was very much clearly a pipeline to college. Um, and they were like, you like math and you like science, you should be an engineer. And I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do, Malachi. Really, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I was good at math and I was good at science. So they were like, you should be an engineer. And I was like, okay, an engineer, that sounds yeah. great. Yeah, they I absolutely should not have been an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's really good that they kind of mapped out and said, hey, like, I think you should go for X x degree i mean so like this was like high school level right yeah yeah in my in my high school they were already kind of preparing those directions and setting up those classes and then so when i went to college um i applied to a bunch of engineering programs my mom was really angry i was an illinois state scholar i got all these high test marks and uh, the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana uh, rejected my application to engineering school. And my mom was furious. And she was the kind of person that let me do my own things. I told you, right? You solve your problems. I don't solve your problems. My mom was writing letters to senators and congressmen and all kinds of stuff. She was furious. <laughs> and an Illinois State Scholar got rejected by Illinois by uh, University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. To this day, she's still like, goes crazy about it. It's hilarious to me. But I ended up at Purdue University. Clearly, I ended up at Purdue University, a mechanical engineering program. I actually started, I really wanted to be an entertainment engineer. I got real addicted really? to building roller coasters. And it wasn't Roller Coaster Tycoon. Everyone knows this like amusement park game. It was like before that, just to date myself, which I <laughs> this game. Um, but you could like build roller coasters and like understand the physics of a coaster. And I just, I thought that was so cool that you could build entertainment. I always liked theater and like the way that technology was used in theater was really interesting. And Purdue had this really cool entertainment engineering program. And so I actually went to Purdue to be an entertainment engineer. Really? And after the first couple of semesters, I realized that there's like 200 of these people on the planet and it is hyper competitive and I should probably broaden my prospects a little bit. So I, I, I took that entertainment engineering and I took it into mechanical engineering, which I'm, I'm glad I did. And I was a terrible engineer, Malachi. 
I was a terrible engineer. But what I was really good at was building um, circles. And so like, I was really good at like forming circles of people around each other and building circles and connecting people together. And really um, that became the thing I was really good at was, was working with engineers and talking to engineers and, and building circles of people and circles of expertise. And so I got to the very end of my Purdue University, uh, my five years at Purdue, and I was, I was like, I do not want to be an engineer. No one wants me to engineer anything. No one should trust a bridge or a car that I designed. Um, you, you want me to do something else. And um, Malachi, do you know what they call an engineer who graduates with a 2.0000 GPA? No, I don't. They call him an engineer. You get an engineering <laughs> degree. It's really amazing. I would point at it here. It used to be on my wall, but it's not there anymore. They call you an engineer. You may have met all the minimum requirements, fairly, <laughs> but you did it. Yeah. I, I knew I didn't want to engineer things. I knew I designing that I have an engineering brain, but you I don't have the attention to detail that an engineer requires. And so um I was looking around, I was trying to decide what to do, and I was applying for traditional engineering jobs to find something. And um, my wife was going to grad school in Cincinnati, and so I started applying for jobs in Cincinnati, and I applied to this little company I'd never heard of in an industry I did not want to work in. And uh, I applied, I talked, and I, I just met these two guys that were brilliant. Tom and Dave just had such passion and energy automation and manufacturing these two guys like literally changed my life they changed the trajectory of all of it and when i got done with my interview it was hilarious i interviewed at balaf i know it was right around halloween it was either right on halloween or a day before or day after halloween because balaf every year has a halloween costume contest inside the building and when i walked into remind you i'm a boy that grew up in chicago I'm going to Kentucky to do a job interview and a boy from Chicago going to Kentucky to do a job interview. You're a little bit like concerned. You've never been to Kentucky in your life. You're like, what am I walking into? And when I walked into the front lobby, I kid you not, there is a lady with all these like jagged teeth, like <laughs> sticking out everywhere. She's got like crazy, like gray, wavy hair. She's wearing the weirdest, like, whipped up, torn, shredded shirt I've ever seen. I'm like, where am I in Kentucky? Where <laughs> am I? It was the costume contest day. Uh, she was dressed up like a witch. She had fake teeth in and her hair all done crazy. And of course she won first prize, but like, that was like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> but it was, it was really cool. So like, I fell in love with this, the, the people there were really incredible. And so I joined Balaf right out of school, more or less. I did IT call center work for a while. It was terrible. No one should be like, that job is horrible. Hey, my computer's broke. My computer's frozen. Can you help me over the phone? Like solve it. That's, if yeah. you ever want to torture somebody, that is the way to do it. You don't, you don't <laughs> do anything else except for put them in a call center and try to help people troubleshoot computers over the telephone. That is really brutal. But um I joined Balof and I was a sales trainee basically before they had that program. And my job was to follow Dave around 
learn what he's doing, and then deliver on the promises Dave made to customers. And Dave was an expert in metal stamping, still is an expert in metal stamping, Dave Bird, metal stamping and welding and, and automation around the press shop and, and in, the, in the fabricator, in the metal fabrication shop. And Dave had the most incredible mind for knowledge and specs and applications and, and language of the people. Dave was able to relate to virtually anybody. And I learned a lot about how a sales process works. I learned a lot about how to talk about technology in a way that people want to care about it. And I learned so much from him. And then um, I also got to work with Tom Rosenberg. And Tom Rosenberg did it another way. He was very much an expert in, in assembly and I would call it cleaner automation applications, you know, um, and general automation kind of applications, uh, seating and kind of like um, the interiors part of yeah. automotive automation. And I learned a totally different way of selling from Tom. Equally valid both of these ways, but I, I learned so much. I saw between traveling with these guys, like I would I would go with Dave for a week, I'd come back, I'd work on stuff for Dave. And I'd go with Tom for a week, I'd come back and I'd, I'd work on stuff for Tom. And like we, we did that for, for a number of years. And I saw how a tree was turned into a two by four. I saw how uh, a car was made. I was, I was inside the Tesla factory when it was the old, um, you know, Numi plant when it was when it was dark and it didn't look like it does today. It's a beautiful place now. Um, I mean, I've seen how ice cream is made. I've, I've seen so many amazing things that we make yeah. in manufacturing, and it's just made me even more passionate. That exposure to all the different things. If you can land a job where you like, it don't matter what the job is, whether it's sales. I mean, sales is definitely a good one for it. But like just gaining that exposure to all these different manufacturing facilities, like that's one thing this past like year, I've started going back to doing much more on-site because we were trying to save a lot of time with, Let's just do virtual meetings, right? If we think it's a, if we think it's a, you know, very valid RFQ, then we'll go on site. Well, now it's like just every every virtual meeting. Let's get an introduction. Let's understand a little bit about their processes, and let's do an on site anyway. I don't care how interested they are, right? Because like there's so much value in like going and seeing their operations, seeing their current automation if they have it, and and after you get the inside view, you can really understand like what their what their automation and processes look like, so you can better help in the future. And I'm amazed by the number of times we come to talk to somebody about one thing. And then after we walk the floor, we end up talking about something entirely different because the conversation started with this, but as we're walking the floor, it's like, oh, what's that? Why are yeah. you doing that? What is going on here? Oh yeah, we hate that. We don't know how to solve that. <laughs> are you kidding? I can solve that with 200 bucks. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like it, it, it totally like changes the dynamic of, of what's going on. And I, I agree that the in-person virtual is nice, but really bringing an expert on your floor to see how you're doing things, why you're doing things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of value in bringing somebody into your shop to talk. Absolutely. Yeah. Another perfect example. This literally just happened like yesterday. So we got sent two RFQs for two robotic cells and, you know, we looked through them, we quoted them mm -hmm. and uh, we end up going on site. Right. And we go, go on site and we get there and we're looking at, at the two different projects. Well, you can't tell from the RFQ document, like geographically where any of the stuff's at. Well, mm -hmm. it, it just so happened to be that one cells right here, the other cells right here. They're sitting right next to each other. Okay. 
and they're running a fairly slow cycle time, like 17 seconds or something like that. Okay. And so now one of the things that we, we've proposed to them is why not handle this with two robots? Like literally mm-hmm. the only other, or I mean, let, why not handle this with one robot, right? You're, yeah. you're putting two robotic cells in here. here. Do something over there. Yeah. Do something over here. Do something over here. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, robotic idle time, if you can reduce the idle time, that just increases the the return on investment, right? So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, in your sense, you never would have known that if you hadn't stood right there, right? I mean, like, yeah. it, it really, there's some things that that only have value when you stand and see it. Like, I remember when I saw ice cream being made, the dude was like, it was July. Bring your winter coat, bring your winter hat, bring your winter gloves, bring all that stuff. And I was like, it's July. He's like, bring all that stuff. So I show up for the call. I'm in the lobby, and he's like, where's your coat? Where's your hat? Where's your gloves? I'm like, they're, they're in the car. He's like, go get your coat. Go get your hat. Go get your gloves. I was like, okay. So I got yeah. all that stuff. I'm like sweating to death. I got it on. And then we go inside, and I realize the entire production is minus 40. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. I'm so glad I have that coat and that hat and that gloves. Absolutely. What was that? What was that like? I don't think I've not been been into the ice cream shop yet. Really cool. I mean, like really, I mean, it's it's all process, right? Like it's liquid. It's yeah. not minus 40 in the whole place. There's like a less Area. frozen, I don't know, like third minus 32 or whatever, or, you know, zero degrees Celsius. There's, mm-hmm. there's, air, uh, but it's, it's liquid and it goes into containers. It's very like process. It's like filling cans or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, and then it freezes, but it's still, it's really cool. Yeah. yeah and there's, there's nothing like, I mean, like every time I've ever been to a food plant and they've been like, here, you want to try it off the line? That mm-hmm. ruins that food forever for me because like <laughs> fresh off the line, there's nothing like eating something like right off the line. That is, yeah, that is incredible. So, yeah, absolutely. so whenever you started with Balif, were, were they already a pretty large company at that point? Yeah, definitely. Balif was a, a big worldwide company um, established in many countries. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought about manufacturing. I had never, I definitely never like thought about automation and manufacturing. I'd never really thought of that before. And I think that's disappointing because it's so cool, but I had just never been exposed to it. And, and the things I was exposed to were never really like exposing me to it. So uh, to be honest, when at first when it was like, you're going to go to manufacturing, I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Like I liked the people, but the like industry. Yeah. I, 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 it took a, it took a little bit, but it didn't take long. I mean, the first time you go to an automotive body shop and you see like, 30 robots all move at the same time or the first time you take a tour of like toyota tmmk is not that far down the road here they make a toyota camry every 50 seconds malachi we've been talking for 23 minutes they've made 25 26 toyota camrys 27 toyota camrys (laughs) while while we've been talking right like that is that's incredible they make a ford f-150 not that far from where you are in louisville they make a Ford F-150 like every minute and 50 seconds. Yep. Minute, minute 42 or something. It, it's, it's mind blowing. Like even today, like I'm 10 years into my career and, and it's all been 
automation, right? That's what I've been doing my entire career. And I literally walk into plants today and I'm just like, just mind blown and baffled by just like seeing the motion of robotics, like servo <laughs> controls, like just all the different processes that you see. And like, like I think I, I'd seen one of, one of the first times I've seen uh, friction welding firsthand. Just oh, yeah. like, That's okay, so cool. cool. I've seen it at a trade show. I've never actually seen it in production, but I've seen it at a trade show. Cool. That's, yeah. that's neat. You got to see that. Yeah, that's an awesome experience. And so it's like so wild. And, and also, like you mentioned before, like being able to see all of the different ways things are made. And like one facility may make the grill of the vehicle. You know, the Toyota plants is doing like the BIW lines where they're welding all of the skeleton together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like each one of these places, you're just seeing like some neat aspect. And, and a lot of times a completely different process, right? Like yep. your injection molding companies are completely different from your, your seat frame welding companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, it's just, uh, it's incredible all the possible things that are made in the U.S. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of reshoring going on. There's a lot of things coming back. But like, I'm still just blown away. We make a lot of stuff here and we make a lot of cool things here. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, most of the food that you eat was, was in a, a plant here in the United States somewhere, right? I mean, like, Kroger based here in Cincinnati. They're one of the largest food producers in the world. Incredible. Like they I remember I visited a pasta sauce factory. And okay. they were running, they were running, you know, basil and I don't remember, tomato basil pasta yeah. sauce. And I was in that plant all day helping solve a sensor application. And I got out of there mm-hmm. and I literally I called my wife. I was like, we're having spaghetti for dinner. And she's like, I already planned something. I'm like, I do not care. And I drove straight to Kroger and I bought the sauce and I bought yeah. the noodles and I made spaghetti and <laughs> because I was like, so I have been smelling this absolutely delicious tomato basil sauce for like six hours. I yeah. am eating tomato basil sauce. <laughs> if it if it's the same plant that I'm thinking about, I think they I think for that brand they make all the tomato sauce or all the spaghetti sauce out of that one facility. For the entire mm-hmm. United States. Yep, yep, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, I saw. I will say, a cheese plant, anything with dairy, is is a little bit overwhelming. You wear all the hair nets and all the like the beard nets. You and I have to have a beard net. I mean, you got all of that stuff. But it is cool to see how that stuff's made. Like, there's one plant in California that makes like some ridiculous percentage, ninety or ninety-two percent of the mozzarella consumed on the planet. Wow. Is made like this one factory in California, it's like absolutely mind blowing. Um, and, and you would think it's in Italy somewhere, right? But no, yeah. it's in this, it's in this plant in California. And like, it's just, it's, it's in, it was so incredible to see how those processes happen. And so that's why, like, um, we have to share more about that. Like if you work in a place like that, how do we work with the, the company to not show trade secrets or whatever, but how do we share it in a way that makes it exciting as a career for those yeah. that aren't in manufacturing? I mean, I, I we should have been, what we do is amazing. Yeah. And we gotta, we gotta share it more. We gotta evangelize it more. Cause, cause we make cool stuff. We make stuff. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think people just need more exposure. So that's like the biggest thing that I see is just the gap in like not seeing it young enough and also just like not getting more of a total exposure to 
I think if you can see automation, especially, or, or see an actual manufacturing process, like those things can become exciting and really, really spark interest. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really, it's a local action. I think this is something I talk about a lot, Malachi, it, like, I can make videos for YouTube. I can make videos for Instagram or TikTok, and they get seen by some people. Um, but that's still something just online. Like sure. you have to engage the local schools. You have to engage the local programs. You've got a, you know, if you have a factory and there's an, el I guarantee there's an elementary school down the street. I guarantee there's a middle school somewhere nearby. Get those kids in for a tour. What you do is cool, even if you don't think it is. It is cool, and they see it, and that is something they find interesting. I was on a tour with like 250 kids at a trade school where, where the and they they were kind of interested in the machining, they were kind of interested in the HVAC training. When we got to the welding lab, and all the students were you know were were. The, you know, running a weld, they were, they were, you know, laying out some beads, they were welding parts, they were doing plasma cutting, cutting metal parts out so that they could weld them together. I mean, like, these middle schoolers and high schoolers were like, totally enamored. They were like, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do that. Like, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really piqued their interest and got them fired up and ready to get involved. And they never considered welding before that day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that like there's a lot of schools that don't do enough, the school side and the manufacturer side that don't do enough, uh, you know, interaction with with doing um, field trips to facilities like that. I mean, I would I would think, you know, there should be like five, six field trips. I mean, you should I mean, in my opinion, like it almost be worth having a weekly field trip or a monthly field trip to like some facility somewhere whether even whether it's not manufacturing too you know if somehow you could like just go to all these different job types right and visit, be able to visit in. the local hospital and learn about the jobs there visit yeah. i mean visit places and see what they're doing i'm really impressed there's a there's a local chain here it's called gold star it, it's gold star chili they make they make burgers and, and shakes and then they have cincinnati style chili they also own the tom and chi brand which some people know from like um shark tank but uh it's like a grilled cheese and tomato soup brand but they um they bring kids in from high school and like internships for business internships so they can learn what it's like to run a business and how running a business works and so like you don't even necessarily have to have them in your in your weld shop as as a 16 year old you can have them in other parts of your business yeah and you can you can have them involved in what you're doing so it's about opening the doors and exposing more kids to to what we're doing and and i it only happens locally like yeah. manufacturers yeah, you have to open your doors to the school down the street that's the yeah. only way this gets better yeah absolutely Absolutely. I think that the social media part of it definitely has uh, a level of impact. And I think that it's definitely something that was missing because I, one big thing that I could see uh, a lot of teachers doing into the future is like, Hey, look at this YouTube video talking about this mm -hmm. thing that like was never really an option, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. especially industry specific. And cause there's so many different aspects too. You have your sales, you have your mechanical engineers, your electrical engineers. And like there's just now becoming like YouTube channels that are like openly just giving away like all this information. Uh, mm -hmm. 
for people to to be able to learn from and, and be able to show in, in their classes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's there's people like Tim Wilborn, right? Like on his channel, you can learn how to code a PLC watching enough yeah. uh, TW controls videos. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's a bunch of others just like them that are are sharing and and really making it available for for people to enter the industry and and to do cool things, really. And I'm so excited about the number of new companies that are out there. I, I really I think it's it's great for manufacturing. It felt like for a while. If you weren't a hundred-year-old company, you weren't established yet. And and now there's a lot of new brands. There's a lot of new people. There's a lot of new energy in manufacturing, and I, I find it really invigorating and exciting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Diving back into uh, kind of the start of of your career with Ballast and running around uh, doing sales. One, I'm personally just very interested in it because even at this stage mm-hmm. of my career it's one aspect that I truly wish that I had and I probably would never do it, but it's almost something that I would say, okay, company, I'm going to leave for a little bit of time. Y'all keep operating without me. I'm going to go like run around with some sales guys and like to see like how they do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, really that, that part of the career was really interesting. I wasn't directly like managing accounts, but I was doing like industry level sales or strategical sales. So I was, I I was learning to be the expert in a subject. Like I learned a lot about metal stamping and welding. Like I do a lot of work with the, the PMA now, the Precision Metal Forming Association about how do we add automation to, to the to the metal stamping and the you know right. the presses, I, I'm amazed. I always ask in presentations with the conference, you know, you raise your hand. How many of you have a machine on your floor right now making parts from before World War II? A lot. <laughs> like half the people will raise their hand, right? Yeah, half the people will raise their hand, and so usually those machines have like. A, a crank for setting the shut height and they have a go and stop button and that's most of the automation and so i'm not telling them they need to go and like bulldoze their factory and buy all new equipment at the next fab tech yeah. that's that's not what i'm telling them but how can we systematically add automation to something that's a good product it will add productivity it will add safety it will add a lot of uh, value quality to your organization, flexibility, visibility, it's going to add all these things to your, your production when you when you update and retrofit and add to it. So um, for me, what I really learned talking, especially when I was product manager for, for our network products, because Balof was always a sensor company. And then uh, partway through my time at Balof, we came out with networking devices. So, you know, IO devices and, and these kinds of things. And yeah. so we had never sold them before. And so I really had to go and listen to customers. I had to ask them questions. And what I realized was the most powerful sales guys ask questions and listen. And inexperienced sales guys talk. Mm. And when I was working with really good salespeople, when I was working with really, really effective and successful and salespeople that really helped their customers, mm-hmm. they were they were they would ask good questions about the business and how they could help the business. They would they would only propose solutions that they had that would actually solve that problem. 
And if they didn't have a good solution for that problem, they would even recommend a competitor or a similar technology that would be the best solution for that problem. Mm. Yeah. Because they wanted to be the advisor. They didn't <laughs> want to just be a salesman. They wanted to be that per that company's advisor. And so if that meant that this one opportunity doesn't fit me, but I'm going to help you find a solution for it, that just means you're going to help me the next time. Is I'm going to ask you for right. it next time because yeah. you'll me find the right partner. Yeah, it builds that rapport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I think you know, even in this digital age, even even in all the social media and and uh, you know the kind of virtual meetings and things we talked about, I think um, that people still buy from people. How, yeah. how we make our connections can be various and hybrid and virtual and in-person, but um, you still, you wanna buy from somebody or a company you trust. And so um, making those connections and, and having those conversations is still a, an important part of, of what we do. And so you, you like people that, that listen to you and really understand what you're saying and, and are actually interested in helping you not people that are interested in helping themselves, right? And that's true in business or in personal life. Like you don't surround yourself with people that are selfish. You surround yourself with people that care about you. And yeah. so that is is really something that um, that I learned in sales and really helped in just life in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so for now, like right now, I'm spending a lot of my education time on the sell side of things because somebody mm -hmm. sharpened for myself and for our company um and something's like like very much becoming a, a like an awakening uh definitely like you said like adding value and helping them solve their solution that's been a, a huge one and then another one that i found has like been very big is like over the past three months like my mind just kind of just expanded exponentially on uh addressing like their concerns about something, right? Like what, where, like, why do you, do, is there anything about this that you think it's not going to be successful or mm -hmm. is there any concern that you may have? And that opens up the ability to, to one, I think not enough people ask that question. Oh, yeah. So now you've opened up this question that like most people have not asked. And then now you can talk about something so you're opening the door and making it okay to talk about a thing that you really didn't want to talk about, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a there's a there's a book. I don't particularly care for the name of the book because it sounds kind of sleazy, but uh -huh. it's called Spin Selling, and it, the idea behind Spin Selling is how you ask questions matter, and the order you ask questions matter, and the style of questions you ask matter. Mm. about building trust between you, about you really understanding what the customer's problem is. And so if you follow this spin selling philosophy that I've, I've really embraced and found interesting, the idea behind it is how do you get to really what the need is? Because a lot of times people tell you, I need a robot to weld some parts. Okay. Why do you need a robot to sell weld some parts? What's the problem that this mm -hmm. this robot is solving for you? You aren't getting good enough quality. Are you? What happens when you don't have uh, good enough quality? Mm -hmm. Oh, your customer charges you to pay someone to sit in your factory and inspect every part one at a time. Oh yeah, that sucks. Okay, so what does that cost you? 
-hmm. like the ability to kind of have the conversation to understand for the customer, oh, this is costing me $400,000 a month. (laughs) Yeah, automating this is a big deal. Uh, Or it's not costing us anything. Okay, well, then maybe that's not really a pain because a lot of times all of us are this way, even in our personal lives. We tell people something that's bothering us. And a lot of times it's not actually the thing that's bothering us. Yeah, it's a deeper thing. Yeah. And so and so what I really love about spin selling is it's about getting to what the actual needs are, what the actual problems are, not just the stated initial problems, but what are the actual problems of the company? What is the value that 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 company connects to those problems? And you're much more successful selling a solution when you can understand and connect your solution to those pains with value. 101%. And this one right here is definitely a personal one. And I'll try to tie it back to manufacturing as good as I can. But uh, I'm listening to Seller Be Sold by Grant Cardone. Uh, and, and a reason why that one's very powerful for me is because I'm slightly introverted and, and definitely when it comes to like the objection side of things, I'm just like, okay, you know what I mean? And, and so the point, the point with that is, is like, I may have the solution. I may be the better, the better vendor or supplier or, or company to do this, this service for them, but seller be sold. They're essentially selling me that we're not, you know what I mean? And, and, and if, and if, and if I'm just going to say, okay, cool, whatever, like then, then essentially we, we, at that point, you almost don't, uh, you don't win the project. You're not able to provide them your solution. You're not able to, uh, you know, supply them as a vendor, which means now somebody else is, and they may not be treating them as well. They may not have as good a service as you. They may install the system and just leave and not come back. Um, and so and it's, it's important to know your value proposition. What are the things that you're bringing to the table that are different than your competitors and being able to explain those clearly and to be able to attach value to those things. You know, if I'm providing 24 hour service that has value versus someone who's only going to provide eight to five service. Um, And so talking about that and talking about what we do differently and the value that it has um, for others. I mean, one of the reasons I came to UR is the amazing ability to get customers to talk about um, case studies and, and testimonials about the value it created for them. Not only the value it created financially, but also the, the human return on investment, the, you know, the internal capital, the getting rid of the stress or, you know, um, getting rid of the physical pain part of the job or whatever it is. Um, if you can connect your solution to that person's personal objectives as well, that's also really important. Like how is that person compensated? Yeah. What are their goals that their manager put on them? Because their goals that their manager put on them might be, I need to reduce every contract by 25% or I can't sign it. Mm. So that guy's being an asshole, not because he wants to be an asshole, but because he has a personal goal that his bonus money is tied to that says he must reduce every contract by 25%. So, I mean, you, you don't know. That's why questioning and and that's why I really like the idea of spin selling. It's about like, what are their needs? Not only the needs of the business, but the needs of the person. And what are the motivations of those people so that you make sure the solution you tie 
Yeah. You're helping them. You're not causing them heartache in their personal objectives or the objectives their boss has given them. You you know yeah. how to present yourself in a way that solves their personal problems. I guess not all their personal problems, but the, you're going to solve their their problems, their personal problems at work as well as their company's problems. And that, if you can yeah. link your solution to that, that's a total win. Yeah, I 100% agree. And what one thing where I see this for us personally is uh, we – we essentially on our account side of our company have, you know, payment terms that the, our customer has to meet those payment terms or we are also not willing slash able to do the work for them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, because we have our own business goals as well. And, and mm -hmm. if you want to do give us net 90 payment terms, 90% of the end of the project, like, you know, that's mm -hmm. not very, uh, you know, good for our side of the business. So one of the things that I've seen, with that is like, how can we get creative? Like this is what your company, how they structure their payment terms. They have to be net 60. How can we get creative in a way where, okay, it could, it's still net 60. We can't change that part of it, but what can we change to, to make it palatable for everybody? Yeah, there's a, there's a really great um, negotiation training that I took years and years and years ago. I wish I could remember the guy's name, Bill something. But he, he talks a lot about yielding and shielding. And so everything, I mean, to him, everything's a negotiation. There's anything is negotiable. I'm, I'm a little bit less uh, believing in that. But, but, in, but in business, for sure, you're, you're negotiating on, on all kinds of things. How much time you have for a meeting to, you know, negotiating on an actual contract. And so um, being very clear and upfront on the things that you're willing to yield and the things you're unwilling to yield, the things you that you have to shield. He always talks about yields and shields. What are the things that you you have to hold on to for your business or for you to feel like you got a good deal um, out of it? And what are the things they need to shield and yield? And so trying to understand their situation as well as understanding your situation and trying to find some way to, to a common point um, is, is a really, uh, negotiation is an interesting topic. And if you're working with big companies, um, big company buyers are trained very extensively yeah. in negotiation skills. Yeah. So just like a salesperson is trained extensively in selling, a, a big company buyers trained yeah. extensively in negotiation and buying skills. And so um, you have to be prepared to, to play on their level. And that that's definitely, that's that, that can be challenging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I see, we see it a lot in any of the projects that are over $250,000. That's where like hard negotiation starts coming into play and, mm -hmm. Start start that the, the negotiation skill sets really start to break out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely, and and the thing is, is you wouldn't be at the table if they didn't like you. And so it's it's really you have to remember that like here's your your opportunity to to talk to them and really understand them better than your competitors. Yeah. I agree. <clears throat> Diving back into your career a little bit, because you know, mm -hmm. I think we're I think we're, at, we're definitely dropping valuable bombs. But uh, <laughs> I want to learn more about you. I want people to know a little bit more about you and and, and some more how your career uh, trajectorized. Yeah, I mean. Uh... So I, I've worked in product management. I mean, I did the kind of strategic selling, the, the segment selling, the industry selling for a while um, and supporting those guys. I, I did food and beverage. I did metals. I did assembly, automotive, packaging. I mean, you you name it, timber processing, energy. 
mobile equipment. I've done industry management on a number of industries, um, but then I've also done product management in a number of cases, and that's a very different skill set, right? Like, um, uh, you know, automation cables. I used to have a friend who used to say, it's just a cable, Will, but automation cables are actually probably one of the more complex parts of a job sometimes because you can't stretch a cable and you know they have a moldy connector on one end and possibly a moldy connector on the other end and if you're short by 100 millimeters yeah. you're short by 100 millimeters and so yeah. there's a lot of variation in that and so like if you've ever pulled a ballot data sheet i hand typed every single characteristic of that cable into each cable like 12,000 parts 200 characteristics i hand typed them into our our no system you know, minus 20c to 70c and um 240 volts ac rating or whatever it is that that it's 300 yeah. volts ac rated most of the cables i mean like i hand typed those into to the database so wow. Um, did a lot of like writing specifications and how are these cables made and, and quality inspections and how do they need to be checked to make sure they, they meet requirements, working with customers when there are quality issues. Um, and so all those things that, that product management, what do we need next in the portfolio and how do we develop partners or, or vendors or engineering to, to do those or production. Um, and then I did, I did for the last, I don't know, six, seven years of Balif, I did a lot of um, marketing and communications management. So how do you, how do you position your company appropriately at trade shows or on the website or Google ads or social media or whatever it is? I worked a lot managing um, marketing programs and, and marketing initiatives and campaigns. So um, I've managed um, teams up to, 26 down to just individual contributor and everything in between. Um, I really found it rewarding. For many years, I worked with co-op students and I hired co-op students out of the local schools and co-op students are amazing. Absolutely amazing. They are passionate and interested and energized. And yes, you have to educate them. But if you put some work into it. I, I had a really good system. I had six co-ops in one of my departments and we were making trade show demos. Every demo you see at Balif, uh, up until quite, no, even now, are built by co-op students. Every demo at Balif was built by a co-op student in the US. And I had two students, it was their first rotation. I'd have two students, two to three students, that was their second co-op rotation. And then one or two students, that was their their you know third, fourth, fifth rotation. And I actually built a program where we had standard training for these kids to bring them on, these students to bring them on. And then they trained each other and helped each other. And that was the expectation. And so in your first co-op, you're, you're trying to figure out how to use a drill and a soldering iron. And by the end, you're, you're programming Siemens PLC logic and working with little mechademic robots. And, and you're, you're really learning automation. And um, I think if I look back on my whole career, the things that I enjoyed most was, um, was working with the students and the co-ops. That was really incredible. That was such great work um they inspired me likely if i hopefully i inspired them and uh, we also had a sales trainee program and i always had two trainees in that group as well and so those those were those were people learning the business before they went out into full-time positions and so the combination of the trainees and the co-op students it was it was really fun to educate other people energize other people and and they're at the beginning of their career and share how awesome manufacturing was i really I loved that that part of my my career a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's kind of one of the most rewarding things is being able to 
you know, influence people who are young in their career to make some type of shift, just be educated. Like it's, it's overall a really cool process. Absolutely. Whenever, uh, wh one of the things that when I first noticed Balif and never even heard of them was whenever they made the shift to IO link. Mm -hmm. So whenever they started to release their IO link product, that's when I got my first exposure to Balif. That was, that was my baby. And I'm glad you, that, uh, it's, uh, it's awesome to hear you say, cause that was exactly my goal. I mean, uh, not to like toot my own horn too much, but, um, between me and a couple of, of colleagues, really just a couple of us, we made IOLink for the market. Mm -hmm. Really? I, I'm, I'm, I'm very dead serious. IOLink was not going to be a thing. And I went out with a colleague, John Harmon. He was my boss at the time and, and eventually a, a really close colleague. And he and I worked very diligently on like, what could this do for manufacturers? And the more we talked to customers and interviewed people, the more we realized how much value it could create for people. And so we um, systematically put together sales trainings and, and sales tools. We systematically put together targeted marketing and, and campaigns and, and marketing activities around it. And then we actively promoted the heck out of it at in-person events and trade shows, and then went around and really tried to understand the reason IOLink was successful, Malachi, I'm 100% guarantee it is, I interviewed hundreds of customers. I would talk to them. What are you trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? Why do you think this would work? Why do you think this wouldn't work? Why, you know, if they did buy it, why did you buy it? What are you doing? And like, I had so many interviews and so many great people opened up and shared with me what they were thinking and how it helped their business. And we took that information and we taught it to the salespeople. We taught it to the next customer. We taught it to each other. And um, that really made IOLink a thing. And I think the core part of that, if I boil it all down, is we listened to the customer. Mm. We listened to the customer. I mean, it sounds obvious, right? Like, yes, of course, you should listen to the customer. But you'd be amazed how many companies never talk to their customer or never listen to their customer. Yeah. But we really, like, John and I, did hundreds of interviews. Yeah. And especially I got, if you're, I got thrown out a lot of places. Really? <laughs> and I think especially with, with, with your like analyzing it, right? Like not only are you asking the questions, but you're intentionally like documenting the questions you're, you know, walking away and not just forgetting about the, the information that you you've gathered, but you, you're actually keeping that information and then spreading it across mm -hmm. your, your team. And the trick is, is knowing your audience, like even inside of a small company, the owner has different objectives than the controls engineer has different objectives than the, the assembler. They have different things they care about. Yeah. They have different things that motivate them. They have different things that they're interested in doing. Just like at a, at a factory, the plant manager has different things that motivate them versus things that the line supervisor has versus the maintenance manager versus the maintenance guy versus the operator. They all have different objectives. And the trick about why IOLink was so successful is we had targeted specific different messages for each of those audiences. Hmm. If you were a, a owner or a, a head of an, a machine builder, you got a certain set of messages. If you were a controls engineer and a machine builder, you got a very different set of messages. Mm. 
If you were a plant manager at a, at a factory, you got a third set of messages. And if you were a maintenance manager or a, a, a maintenance tech or an engineer at a plant, you got a, you got a fourth set of messages. And we had a lot of different things. The technology was exactly the same. The solution yeah. was exactly the same. But the questions you asked in spin selling were different. The, the proposals and values you tied those to were different because everyone has different motivations. And so if we can listen to customers and understand what they're motivated by, we have to change our language by what motivates them, not by what we want to sell. What do you think the, um, or could you give examples of some of the different messages as far as like, if you're talking to like the owner versus talking to the engineer? Yeah, totally. So like one that, that I, um, that just blew me away one day. I was interviewing, I was interviewing a, a machine building owner and I had had a lot of conversations with controls engineers at machine builders, but I hadn't really met, this is a long time ago now, more than 10 years ago, but I, I hadn't really met too many like owners of the companies, right? I was, I was a young guy in my twenties. I was meeting with controls engineers. I didn't meet too many owners and we went out to lunch and like, right as we were leaving, the owner was like, where are you guys going? What are you doing? And they were like, we're going to lunch. He's buying. Ha, 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 ha. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm buying. And he's like, I'm coming with. And I didn't even know who he was. He, he wasn't part of our meeting, nothing. And so we're out having lunch and and I'm down at the same end of the table as, as this guy and other, other kind of different conversation. He was like, so why are you here? What do you do? And so I was kind of explaining, I link a little bit and none of my arguments for controls engineers were like, he was like, I don't care about that. I, yeah. I don't care about that. I don't care about that. And I was like, oh. Shit. <laughs> yeah. You're a machine builder, though. You should care about these things, but he doesn't care about those things. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I would talk to controls engineers about how easy it was to like upload parameters. So once you built a machine once, if you're building the same machine or the same part of a machine, right? Even if you build custom equipment, you don't make it from scratch each time. You have some base things that you do similar each time. Yeah. And so you can steal pieces of code from previous projects, or you can, you know, you always have kind of like a library of stuff. Yeah. And so, one of the powers of IOLink for a controls engineer is you can save parameters and you can save some of these things and then use them in future projects. And so I was talking about that and he, he didn't care. But when I was talking a little bit about some of the other things that, that I could do, he was like, wait a minute. And I was like, well, okay. And he's like, so what you're telling me is I could shorten how much time it takes for me to build a machine. And I said, yeah, definitely. We have case studies that shorten the time to build like 15 to 30 to 40%. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you care about that. That's cool. And he's like, this is why I care about it. And he was really kind to like share with me why he cared about it. And this blew wide open conversations with, with, with machine builders. And what he said to me was with the same people, with the same floor space, no, not having to buy another building, nothing. Yeah. I can grow my business. I can accept 30% more orders mm. with the same people in the same building. I don't have to expand my floor space. I don't have to yeah. hire anybody. I can, I can grow my business without having to increase my bottom line. And I was like, duh, that's a huge value. Yeah. And the solution is the same. 
the ability for controls engineers to re-piece things together and the ability for line builders to just screw things together instead of having to build an electrical cabinet. Like, yeah. I was I was saying the same solution. Yeah. But I was saying it in a totally different way. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like another I, I could see now that you say that like another scenario would be like you can provide a better system to your customer, right? You don't have to tell them all the jazz about all the extra data that it that it gives you to be able to work with, but you can now, you know, deploy a smarter system to your customer. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, and and so we we built messages specifically for that for that um, you know machine builder. We called it the the profit and loss guy. Who's the guy that cares about the money? The controls <laughs> yeah. engineer. They say they yeah. do, but they they don't actually. Yeah, unless they have some type of bonus tied to. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the sure the there's, there's somebody. I mean, I'm sure you know in your position. There's someone who cares about every penny. And, yeah. And um, that that does matter. And so it, it matters differently to someone who's in charge of it than someone whose bonus is tied to it. Yeah, 101%. 101%. So, I mean, no one cares about your business as much as you do, right? And so the yeah. arguments to, to you are going to be different than the arguments to to them. I mean, you, you were talking about terms and negotiating on terms. If you can ship machines faster, then then you know you have a lot more opportunity to fill your pipeline and so then maybe you can carry some other projects or something you can carry long terms on one project because you're turning enough fast enough that it, it ah, it'll work out in the end but you know there's there's things that you can do when you have those kinds of values so um there's so much to think about in selling and sales and marketing and and <laughs> it all comes back to asking good questions and doing good listening, right? It all comes back to, to being a good listener and asking good questions. Good sales and marketing people aren't talkers, although I've talked for an hour now. <laughs> they're, they're, good, they're good listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think listening is a huge asset to have, like no matter what your position is. Like I remember like for myself, probably for at least like two years, I had smart things to say, but I just didn't say them. I would just sit there and listen and listen and listen and listen until I got to a point where I was like, okay, I definitively know now. I would ask questions. I would say, oh, why are we doing it like this way? Why are we mm -hmm. doing something like that? And, you know, I'd ask questions, but I really didn't have much input. And then, so like just being quiet and listening for a couple of years, like really built that. That's whenever I got the audacity to speak up in meetings and be like, okay, guys, this is dumb. We shouldn't do this. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and this goes like, so like I, I spent a lot of times as a controls engineer. And so like a lot of that would be like, okay, cool. The device costs a thousand extra dollars. Buy it. It makes more sense. <laughs> my worst project, my worst controls project was with IO link. And it was because the upper management said, we need you to use Alan Bradley master blocks with Balif IO blocks. <laughs> that thing, I, all, all the, all the blocks had to be written to with like implicit messaging, uh, <laughs> instruction blocks. And I'm like, guys, it's been like two weeks to like write all those instruction blocks and get all the parameters set. Right. And like, <laughs> that, um, no, no, no comment, but, um, yes, I, I, um, I'm not surprised hearing that story is what I will, what I will say. 
So I, you know, it was listening that gave that audacity of, of things, and like, and ultimately, uh, side note, one, I actually eventually want to write a book called "The Audacity to Start a Company," and it's, it's revolved around a lot of these things here. It's like the listening and the, you know, then being able to speak up in a meeting, and then speaking up and and somebody not listening, and then you know things don't go the right way, and then somebody looks at you and says, yeah, "You're probably right on that," and uh, <laughs> and you know, I think that it could have never happened without listening, right? It all started with listening, learning, just having a deeper understanding of what's going on, why people are doing things in a certain direction. Also, I guess thinking too, thinking of yeah. things another, and like the, why are we doing something in a, in a certain way while you're listening and really analyzing yeah. things? Awesome. Will, what last valuable points do you have to add back to the community? Man. Yeah, I think, um, I guess, I mean, looking looking back on, on 17 years, I think uh, just being curious, asking your questions. I mean, um, I'm amazed the number of times that I've been in a meeting and someone's used an acronym or something and uh, no one says anything and I'll be like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. And you'd be amazed the number of people in the room are like, yeah, I don't know either. But you've got to you know, be the first one to speak up is is um it's really if you don't understand ask like mm. people are talking because they're trying to communicate to you communications bi-directional right if you yeah. if you don't understand then it was not communication yeah absolutely so you, you really got to make sure that you're actually talking to people you're actually listening to people and, and you're really engaging um i i think so many of us listen, but don't actually communicate or, or don't engage with the communication process. You know, you, 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 you are an active participant in communication. And I think um, when you become an active participant in communication, really amazing things can happen. Absolutely. I, I like to add one thing. It kind of ties into that and it, being humble. I think a lot of people like won't ask the question. It, it, one, because insecurity as well. So you're either insecure and you don't want to look dumb or you're not being humble and you don't want to look dumb because of your ego. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are also important points. I mean, I look dumb to begin with, so I have no trouble <laughs> asking dumb questions. Self-deprecation, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, self that's my kind of humor. So. <laughs> Well, I definitely enjoyed having you on today. I think we could probably make a three-hour podcast if we wanted to. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> where where can no, people find you? At? Where can people find you at? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm on I'm in all the places. LinkedIn's my main spot uh, for Will Healy. Uh, don't don't look for Will Healy Jr. You'll get my dad. You'll get a lot of content about watering plants. It's much more complex than turning on the water, apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, you look for Will Healy the third. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on most of the socials on Reddit. Most of them I'm on there as Will Automate. Reddit, TikTok, uh, oh. Twitter, 
I just started an Instagram account. I'm blown away by the amount of manufacturing on Instagram. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, all those places I'd give you my email address, but I think we started off saying I don't read email. So, uh, that's, <laughs> that's probably not very helpful. Best place is, is LinkedIn. Send me a DM. My, my cell phone's there too. You could text me. Those are all good ways. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Will. I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much, Malachi. It was super fun. Thanks for the conversation. Likewise.